Episode four coming up with Jim Curry. Jim is from California, and I've known Jim for a few years now, and he performs a great tribute to John Denver, and I really enjoy his show a lot. He's performing at our theater for about a week and did a fantastic job, and I thought we'd sit down and talk about uh, how he got to what he's doing now. I know you'll enjoy listening to this one, and uh, let's just get it going. All right, we're here with Jim Curry. I'm very excited to have Jim uh, on the podcast. Jim is performing at our theater, at the Walters Theater, this week to uh, sold-out crowds. And Jim does a, a fantastic tribute to uh, uh, John Denver. That's the person. And he's, I hate calling it a tribute. I want to get into, right, I'm going right. to get into this right away. <laughs> because for me, there's two types of tribute groups. They're the ones that, um, how do I put it politely? They're the ones who kind of go up on stage and dress up like the artist. Yeah, yeah and, they're, they're and, really over-the-top impersonators. Yeah, yeah, so it's in the real yeah. impersonator. And there's, there's shows like yours that kind of really, what they I tend to do is really pay homage to the music, music of the artist. Right, and we're very careful to brand it that way because it's, that's the hurdle for us. We always struggle with that. People immediately, when they hear tribute, they think Vegas, they think impersonator, cheesy, yeah. you know, and, and it's so hard to get over that. But it's, it's a tough thing now because there's so much of that. I mean, there's yes. so much of the tribute show. Everyone thinks, okay, my career isn't going anywhere. <laughs> um, you know, maybe this is a way for me to, to uh, do some do some shows. Yeah. And it's difficult. And as a someone who goes out, and promotes a lot of shows, we're we're actually fighting against those type of people because the audience doesn't know the difference between this right. show and that show when they see right. it. Well, not when they buy the ticket. Yeah, right. so it's difficult. So a lot of the tributes out there that aren't good is tough because it all you have to do is go to one or two of those. You've lost it, your market. Yeah, the, they're like, oh, I don't want to go see another tribute that lasts two. You know, or, yeah, they were terrible. Yeah. So yours is fantastic. Um, and it's done the way I'd want to see a tribute done. And you are yourself. Right. You're singing the music. Um, you're telling the stories. And it's super interesting. Um, and it's hard to get that from a lot of, quote, tribute type yeah. shows. <laughs> well, you know, when I started it, I... I never thought of it any other way. I, I didn't, I was so, maybe it was my being naive about the business, but we started this quite a long time ago before the tribute thing really kicked in yeah. and everybody started doing them. Um, but I, I've looked at this as a performer, as an entertainer. Um, I've always had this voice. I never had to try to sound like anybody, so I never looked at it as anything other than me performing a song, no different than the original artist did. John covered Beatles tunes and Buddy Holly, uh, James Taylor. You know, he did these songs. He, I'm sure in his mind, he wasn't up there trying to tri- pay tribute to the Beatles or Buddy Holly. He was just singing a song he wanted to sing. And I, I feel the same way when I'm performing. That's the way I feel about it. I, I'm singing a, a, a songs that John sang, but it's 
a song that I just want to deliver, you know. Yeah. So how long? It's been 16 years since? Yeah, 16 years full time. And ever since junior high, I've been singing and playing the music, but as a hobby. Yeah. yeah. So let's go back to, because um, I know you obviously from doing this show, but I don't know where you came from. Right, right. So uh, where did you grow up? Where, you know, where were you born? And- uh, yeah, you know, I my uh, family, my dad's Navy, so we moved a lot and his uh, career took him from one naval port to another. Um, I was born in Newport, Rhode Island, oh, nice. uh, along with like three of my other siblings. Um, but when I was born, they moved right away. So, yeah. you know, I had no idea anything about Newport. I've never, had never been there until I was much, much older. Yeah. And uh, then uh, the, my earliest memory was um, in Texas. And we grew up there for four or five years. Um, I know I was there during one of the big hurricanes when the floods hit and the streets flooded and my yeah. my brothers and sisters i was so little i couldn't go out into the street because it was flooded but they would we were all swimming in the street and i was just piggybacking on their back but a crawdad looked like a lobster to me then you know <laughs> it was one of those one of those things that uh fond early 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 memory uh and then my dad moved to new orleans and we lived just across the the river from the french quarter I have real strong memories of New Orleans in that French Quarter yeah. era, you know, that nostalgic feeling about wrought iron or something, you know, <laughs> I guess all the buildings have that. And uh, my mom would take me as a very young, the, the other kids were going to school, I was not in school yet, and uh, we'd go across on the ferry to the French Quarter, my mom would do her shopping, and we'd go you know, back home. Uh, I remember that very distinctly. And then from there, uh, moved uh, to California, and where I was beginning first grade, and uh, began a long period of time in California. We lived in uh, Southern California for about four or five years, um, and then moved again in my sixth grade, moved into Ontario, California, yeah. which was formed by the Brock, uh, uh, some Chafee brothers out of Brockville yeah. uh, and brought, came down, they made Ontario. And that's, that's where we lived for another, uh, gosh, that would have been from my sixth, sixth grade till 11th grade. Wow. Uh, lived there. So already by the time you're in the 11th grade, moved quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quite a lot. Yeah. So, when did you start taking your interest in music? Did you start singing and playing early, or was it later? No, no, it was it was that move to Ontario. I hadn't had any music until junior high, um, and I think that's just about when I started, you know, paying attention to uh, that kind of music. There was a lot of Neil Diamond, John Denver, Jim Croce. Uh, and so my dad had a, a funny habit of bringing home instruments that he wanted to learn to play. Um, I think he had some musical influence in school where he was in the band thing in high schools, but we never knew him to be a musician, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, uh, he would just keep bringing instruments home. The first thing he brought home was a baritone ukulele wow. and he would get his Mel Bay book out and start you know, trying to teach himself. And then it was, he would set it down and that's where it sat. He never picked up again, you know, so he had this very short attention span, I suppose. <laughs> but in the 
you know, in that I picked it up and I started learning. So I learned to play uh, on the baritone ukulele and then uh, got my own guitar and the baritone and the guitar is similar tuning. So all I had to do is figure out, you know, the very small difference between the two. And I started playing guitar and most of the music I self-taught. I've just listened to the albums and and teach me, the, you know, the song. And, and John was one of the artists that was a uh, strong influence, and so I learned a lot of John Denver on the guitar back then. Yeah. yeah. So what, what age would that have been when you, you think well, let's you see. started a guitar? What is that? Um, junior high, so you're... Um, 14, 15? Yeah, somewhere in somewhere that 14, yeah. about 14, yeah. So... Once you got that, and does anyone else, no one else in your family plays or anything? Or? You know, my sister picked up the guitar too about the same time, and she was starting to learn similar, you know, just on her own. Yeah. You know, but, and she still, still plays a little bit, does, you know, not a, she's not a strong player, but she's, you know, does church things and that type of thing. Yeah. So do you remember your, your first official show? Like, <laughs> not necessarily. You know, Pain, as but, far as a performance, I'd have to mm-hmm. say it's probably Boy Scouts, you know, because oh, yeah. I, I, I was not a, you know, in any kind of uh, organized music other than I just brought my guitar maybe to a camp out and play, yeah. you know, so it was Boy Scouts really around the campfire. Um, and that was all the way through, you know, 11th grade. I, I never really developed a whole lot of strong playing technique or style. Um, just learned the basics. You know, a lot yeah. of the songs were very simple, three, four chord songs, you know. So uh, I, I went a long time that way yeah. <laughs> before I realized, you know, I, I, I probably should work a little harder at this. <laughs> yeah, that, that happens, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so where did you find yourself after high school? You know, I, I, I ended up finishing uh, school. My, my dad retired and we moved just before the 12th grade. So I moved again and uh, back to where he was born, which is in Texas. And we lived in a small little town just outside of Texas City, which is where he was uh, from, Seabrook area, and um, finished high school there. And that's when everything turned. You know, I, I was an art student all through junior high and high school. Uh, I had big dreams of being the next guy to come up with the new Coca-Cola ad or slogan or something. You know, yeah. I had a passion for art and wanted to be in advertising. And so my focus was in art and design. And um, that was where I was at until we moved. And in Dickinson, Texas, uh, I was the new kid from California, played guitar. You know, all the, yeah. the students all reckon, you know, heard me play. I brought it to some uh, rehearsal of the high school play, you yeah. know, with a few new friends that I had had. And uh, I wasn't in the play. And the students encouraged the... Uh, teacher to ask me to be a part of the play and there was really nothing open in the play for me to be or do but uh, the teacher said well why don't you write a song for the play you know to open the play with and you know I wasn't a trained musician I just self-taught chords you know so I couldn't say I was someone that could write a song but I took the challenge and I I had a lot of uh, interesting 
ideas, you know, and I, I with with what I did have in a, my toolbox, I was able to write, pull it off, and I wrote a song for the class play. Well, that really took off, and uh, the class liked the song. I sang it in the, for the plays, and, uh, and then later that year, they, they voted it the class song. And so from that, the Rotary International... Um, gave me a full two-year scholarship to study music. Oh wow! So it took a real, you know, sharp what turn. You thought you were yeah, do right, too, yeah, right, right, right. So you know, and I took advantage of that. Went to the local college for two years and studied music, um, voice. It was a you know for vocal, um, but along with that, you you know you have to include sight reading and piano and you know all the musical parts of it that I hadn't had. Yeah. And so it was it was a you know it was a stretch. To go from an artist to uh, learning how to read music and write it and compose it and you know ear training and all that stuff, but I I, I still even though uh, I had the scholarship for music, I did take secondary courses in commercial art still. Oh, yeah. So I doubled down on it yeah. while I was there, and you know the music training I think came into play when this became a career because of what this is demanding on the voice it was good that i had that training because yeah. i think it it's what made the difference in me keeping my voice for all these years i think when you you have something like that in your earlier years you don't really know that you're using those skills right yeah but all of a sudden you, you think back on it it's like i bet you that's really helped me along the way right it really did i know there have been some tours that have been every day 300 miles do a show you know we had 50 54 days and uh like 49 shows you know and it's it can be a real stretch uh especially some of john's music it's, it gets into that real high range and you know, it can be wearing on, on a voice to do that much in a short period of time. And, and I look at that training for, vo for the voice as the reason I'm able to not ruin my voice and, and keep going. Which is great. And some people can just do it, too. Like some people can just sing every day <laughs> and not have an issue. And some people have who are trained even can only sing so long and then they're, right. they're done. It's just, right. a lot of it's just genetics. Yeah, maybe yeah. so, yeah. But it also, you know, the training really does help. Yeah. But there are a certain amount of people I find, I find that just, they can either do it or they can't. <laughs> it's almost like being on the road, uh -huh. right? You can yeah. either, you can either hack it or you can't. Right, right. And you can either... Uh, you've probably had that circumstance where you've worked with some people after a week or two weeks of, as you said, driving 300 miles, right. doing a show, getting up early, going at it. I can do that, but I know other people, even my sister, uh, Kimberly, <laughs> yeah. she'd have a real tough time at that really heavy, that steady pace. pace. Yeah. Um, even though we've done it, it's, 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 it gets wearing really quickly right right yeah. right yeah no i i think that is an aptitude or an instinct uh, a built-in thing i i'm my my kids think i'm a machine you know yeah because I, I never stop you know i can just keep going no matter you know how much is on top of our schedule it it just doesn't seem to matter i'm, I'm driven to 
get from point A to point B, and until I'm there, I just there's no lack of energy. And that's the only way you can you can do this type of business. You have I think to so. have that drive. You have to have you have to be a machine. Yeah, and, yeah. And you have to just keep rolling because you wear out and you're just bottom out real quick if you yeah. if you can't handle that. Right, right. So obviously you did. Uh, the Rotary, it's ro- Rotary, right? Rotary, so, yeah, Rotary International. And yeah. then wh- where'd you find yourself after you finished that? You know, it was funny because I do, was taking those other courses for commercial art. Um, the professor that was teaching the class um, also worked for the college in their advertising department. So actually my first job after the two years, uh, I had the option of going on to a four-year college and continuing my music study um, and, but I, I decided I was ready to go to work, yeah. <laughs> and and the college actually hired me in their art department. So uh, my first job out of college was working in the graphic department at the university there. So uh, that was good. It was an, a good stepping stone, but not too much after that. I, um, gosh, within the year, I, I had another job designing billboard ads in Houston. So it was one of the biggest independent billboard uh, companies in Houston, and they hired me to design their ads. And so I got that, and that that opened up a whole nother uh, career because, you know, being in the sign business was not something I had thought of, but advertising was, and and the billboards were a good um, outlet for my creative to create ads for these companies that are trying to put something big up on the freeway. So, you know, a lot of my designs got seen by many people and that type of thing. And the company loved what I was doing. I I quickly grew up the, you know, up that ladder in that corporation and I got cross trained. You know, they, they brought me into the shop to show me how my designs translated from the, design board to the big full thing and back then it wasn't paper it wasn't printed it was hand done you know and so i got to see the whole process how it took from the small uh layouts that i was doing up to the big full billboards and uh, over a short period of time cross-trained me to do all those steps everything along the way of translating it and you know into the larger thing and actually painting it onto the uh, billboard and so i became one of the kind of versatile people in the company i was still uh, the artist uh, designer but i could also go out in and actually paint the billboard so i learned how to hand paint and do sign lettering and the whole thing and was quite uh, apt to it it was another thing that seemed to fit my um aptitude and i came to it real easy so um i was very successful in that and they brought me up to the top of the ladder quickly and i was over in charge of uh of the crews and the and the art department and you know so it was a really amazing experience but uh, i you know i wasn't really happy being in in houston when my dad retired and we left california i hated that i really didn't want to live out you know where we were in texas i'm not yeah. a i'm not a flatlander you know? yeah <laughs> you know i like the mountain range i love the the dry weather i love the west and i still had that yearning for that so as my success rose in this company and i had uh, a very successful income 
I started thinking about going back to California. I have to ask you. So when you travel now, and after being so many years doing the billboard, uh-huh. do you constantly look at them? Of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course, I don't appreciate them the same way because I know the technology's gone to to print, you yeah. know, and or digital. Now there's digital boards. I, you know, they, uh, it's sort of cool because what you can design and do as advertising now on a billboard is so expanded. Yeah. Uh, it's like everything, even the music industry, you know, all the technology that has made it so much better. Um, but uh, yeah, you can't help but look at signs. Uh, you know, after after I did move back to California, I went back because I, I had my, uh, my early childhood first love, you know, was in California. And so that was part of the uh, uh, whole draw to get back to California was was her. You know, I I had girlfriends in Texas, but it wasn't the same. You know, I guess that first love thing hangs there. So did you I know you talk about this in your show. Uh And it's a great moment and a great connection part in the show. Uh, So you did actually calling up i did yeah yeah you know she i I, we didn't have cell phones this was a whole different era you know there was no easy emailing you know you couldn't email anybody or text them you know the worst part when you called (laughs) you always got the mom or the dad usually the dad always answer and yeah what do you want i hated that (laughs) it's like now it's so much easier you can just text and direct you know message Right. Uh, and connect no, right to the Phil, person before you had to go through like this. The dad. Know, yeah, yeah. The right. army to get through. Right. Well, and he was a police officer. So, oh, geez, you know, right. it made it even more, a little tougher. But, uh, yeah, so it, there was none, none of that technology for communicating. And when I left California, I, I was heartbroken because Ann and I had dated for three months and uh, we got separated. And my, her going away present to me was... Uh, the John Denver Back Home Again album oh, had nice. just come out. It had Annie's song on it, which was, you know, her name. Yeah. Uh, and so it was a, a, a yearning time, you know, because you would only get to hear this music when it happened to come on the radio, yeah. especially traveling across the country and being recently broken up. Uh, you know, I just listened for the radio, hoping that Annie's song or something would come on, you know. Um, but so I had this you know, this anxiety period of, of being in Texas early on when we first got to Dickinson. And, you know, for the first year, it was this anxiety and writing letters and, you know, that type of thing. And she was excellent. She wrote letters all the time. Um, and there was a lot of hope, you know, that our relationship could continue. Well, four and a half, five years of time, it, it fades, you know, yeah. and it fades quickly. Um and and I was bad. I wasn't good at writing often, you yeah. know, so it yeah, faded. Same, same way. I, I hated writing. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, our separation happened gradually and, and uh, it just was more of a natural thing, I suppose, considering the, the times. And so after uh, I got my success in the sign business, uh, doing billboards, and I had this feeling to go back, I just called her up, uh, you know, out of the blue, which, you know, that's an expensive phone calls back then. They, yeah. they weren't cheap. The long distance calls, you know, meant you were spending some money to do it. But I called her up and 
she literally like, who is this? Because <laughs> so, you know, she had moved on. She was dating other guys. And, uh, you know, so it, it, it was uh, it was kind of a shock because, you know, I told her I I I honestly felt like that we were meant to be together. Yeah. You know, and she's like, what are you talking about? Where did you come from? You know, <laughs> where have you been? Uh, so I, I did take uh, the vacation time, went out and did some visits and my sister still lived out there. So I stayed with her and, you know, we went and did things, you know, we dated a little bit and uh, on these random trips I could take. Yeah. And uh, so how, how old were you at this? Oh gosh. So I'm, I'm probably 20, Yeah, you know, and, uh, she's three years younger than I am. So she's finishing up high school and I actually was able to go out and, uh, do a, a grad night at Disneyland with her. Um, and you know, at some point, one of the trips, uh, we were going to go to another amusement park with my sister and her two kids. Yeah. And uh, and her and her husband and uh, my sister and her husband had these two kids and they were still in strollers. They're very young. And we went to Magic Mountain. Uh, it's a Six Flags yeah. uh, park. And we just, you know, at, at some point just before going, like the day before, and tells me that it's over. She doesn't want to continue the relationship. It's, you know, she's has other relationships and, and, you know, didn't feel like this was going to work. And I said, well, we've already got this trip planned. You want to just go to Magic Mountain with my sister? We'll just go and have a good time. And she agreed, so that'd be fine. So we went the next day and my sister and husband were not getting along well that day. The kids were a nightmare, you know, <laughs> and, and so... I volunteered to take the kids for a while. You know, I said, "Well, you guys go do something, and we'll we'll watch the kids." You know, yeah. and so I gave them a little break, and I guess that was the difference. You know, and and saw me in a different light. Yeah. You know, and 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 from that, she changed her mind. So that's good. Yeah, I mean, kind of weird. <laughs> well, you know, it's hard to say just that one. Yeah, decision that you made. Yeah. To okay, let's take the kids and let's yeah. separate here for a little bit. Yeah. That could have been the difference between it happening or not happening. Right. Yeah. And and she says that was it. She says you were so good with the kids. I thought, wow. He, well, he might make a good husband. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. I I remember, um, you know, kind of at that age too, and having. Um, a long distance relationship uh. with a girl out, out west, and uh, we met at a show. We're still really good friends, and uh, it was the same type of thing where you send letters back and forth. <laughs> and it was neat, I mean, because you'd it'd be oh. weeks between, oh, yeah, and then you get this letter and it's like six pages long, right? Eight right. pages long, oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I tried to write a package, felt so guilty, <laughs> and it's like I try to, I'm doing my best to get a page. Like I know. To, if yeah. I could get a page, wow, it's great. And we would talk on the phone every once in a while about the same thing. Long distance charges, yeah, right? Uh, were crazy, and you couldn't right. text and all those things. Um, but I think there was something. I feel sorry for someone nowadays if you were to meet someone because you you talk way differently, and you communicate it way differently. Yeah. That direction yeah. instead of just a, Hey, how's it going by a text? And, um, 
you actually ended up talking for two, three hours on the phone or if you could afford it. Right. Uh, right, right. And then you would talk about lots of different things. So right, right. Uh, I feel uh, my friend, as I mentioned, we're still really great friends. I believe I know her probably better than almost anybody. Wow. And yeah. she says that, you know me better than anybody. Yeah. And, and we don't, we don't spend any time together. We already, our whole lives just, right. You could probably say days. Wow. But it's because you've communicated so much and it was a special bond at that time. Yeah. That you just get to know someone from yeah. them just chatting right. and talking and true. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I think my feelings were, I am glad that I trusted them because being in, Texas and dating a few people, you sort of, you kind of purge some of those questions yeah. about what you're looking for. Um, and then my image of what Anne was back in California was what kind of kept drawing me, you know, the feelings I had when we were together. Uh, I, you know, and maybe they were exaggerated with the distance and the time, you know, but, and maybe they're a little idealistic, maybe, you know, but yeah. they, that is what brought me back to going and wanting to pursue that was the, those feelings I recall, uh, from when we were together and, and her letters, you know, although she did the same thing, she was excellent at writing these long letters yeah. and I was so inept at, at returning, you know, a page maybe, um, but, uh, you do get to have those sense of who they are and, and a lot more, uh, intense, I think, uh, when, when it, your, your communication in, in those days was restricted to these limits. Yeah. And, and I think you put a lot more heart maybe into what you want to say and, and communicating, but. And you weren't distracted by right. Facebook <laughs> yeah, and Instagram right. and like a million right. other people's relationships. And right. all you were concerned was that I remember, uh, you know, girlfriends from years ago and even this person I was talking about, you know, you would, you would sit and think about them for days. Yes. Right. And it was all that was on your mind. You didn't right. have anything else to think about. You thought about, right. You thought about them. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that had a big part in, in the desire to get together again. And, you know, at some point and, uh, and I, once we did get together and she did agree that we should be together and said yes, you know, after saying no many times yeah. to marriage, um, she, uh, you know, we had gotten to the point now that we're back together and we're, we're learning again really about who we were then, five, six years later, yeah. um, because both of us had changed from when we were dating five years earlier. Yeah. And, and she even had to point out, she says, you know, I'm not the girl you remember you know, and I think that's an important thing, you know, but it, I do believe the five years apart was what made it work. She had her opportunity to date and see other boys and, you know, and have that life, you know, and not just jump into the first thing that came along. Yeah. And same with me. I had a chance to date other people. So I think it, it gave us that little bit of breadth to come back together and, and see if something was there, um, knowing that we've not denied our self in a life experience with other people. So uh, that's sort of how I think it made it work. And for those who are listening and don't know that Anne performs with you and you, and you yeah, oh yes, and right. sings and plays guitar and mandolin. And yeah. So was she 
playing at that point yes. as well? Yeah. You know, I, uh, uh, you know, we we met truly through Boy Scouts. Her brother had joined the troop that I was the uh, senior leader in. I was the senior patrol leader, and her young brother had joined the troop. And I knew her brother and her dad before I knew her. Yeah. And it wasn't until we had one of those family campouts where the families could come uh, that uh, he brought his whole family, uh, including his two daughters. And um, so that night or that day, you know, you, Anne and her sister played guitar. They brought their guitars, then they were singing around the campfire. Um, and it, you know, was the my first um, time seeing her. And... So it was an interesting moment. I I was attracted to somebody you know, at a young age that I you know never had that experience really, uh, and the music was the connection you know that she played and sang and you know she's this cute button nosed little girl that you know had all this talent. Her and her yeah. sister both very talented and sang beautifully. So. Uh, her young brother, who was in the troop, was learning all his scout skills, and uh, I had uh, the responsibility of doing a lot of training and teaching of the younger scouts in, in our program, and I would do these courses of knife safety and that type of thing. And so at one point, I, I thought I was being very clever, and I said to her dad, I said, well, Donnie is working on his knife and axe safety, and uh, he needs, maybe he needs a little bit more help with the axe, and I could come over and help him out. And her dad says, well, which one of my daughters are you interested in? <laughs> <laughs> Saw right through me. I, I had no idea. And I, you know, it, it took me back, but anyway... He was okay with it. She was young, and he, he had a dating role that, you know, you couldn't date until you were a certain age with, the, with his daughters. But uh, being that it was a Boy Scout connection and all that, he allowed us to spend time. And so we'd get together and play guitar in the living room or take a bike ride over to the Farrell's ice cream parlor or yeah. something like that, you know. So we had great. <laughs> Which one are you interested in? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I tell you. Well, he was a policeman. He he seemed to be able to read people really well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, at that point, you the both of you got together, and then you moved. Yes, back to we California. had that. We it was just that summer, um, and um, where we dated, and then uh, we got back together. I was there about a year. We had a you know she agreed to marry me, and we had about a year before we got married. Um, and she was she was working a couple of jobs at the time uh, when I f when I first came back out to California and we started dating again. She was at a lighting company doing you know retail job, and then um, just after we got married, she went to work for a law firm doing a clerk work, and uh, that didn't last long. Uh, she didn't enjoy it. It was kind of difficult. Uh, office to work in, and but uh, my sign experience and all of that came into play. I, I got a job with an a agency right away, doing technical illustrating and photography um, work with with the guy. It was just a single shop uh, uh, owner, and I was his you know assistant to do all the ads and, and design work. Yeah. But um, that guy retired and. 
and left me looking for a job again. And we were married, and um, I needed to find work right away. So I ended up looking at a sign company near where we lived, and I thought, well, that'd be good. I'll go back into the sign business. And <laughs> I get into that, and the and the same thing happens. The guy is wanting to retire. And I oh, said, yeah. why? Everybody I go to work for wants to retire. Yeah. <laughs> How would I got to hold a job? <laughs> well, he, he made the offer. He says, why don't you buy the company? Yeah. You know, and so it, it didn't quite work out the way we thought it would, but we did end up having our own sign company in that area. Um, and Ann and I, so after one year of being married, now we're partners in business. Yeah. And we went to work together. She came and did all the paperwork um, and bookkeeping and all that. And I did all the uh, the art and design and fabrication of, of signs. And we did that together for five years at that level. Yeah. And then I expanded. I went and got my sign contractor's license. Uh, we hired journeyman sign makers to do sheet metal and neon and plastic uh, work and welding and all that. And uh, we grew and we had uh, uh, up to like 20 employees over the years and uh, a huge shop. We were doing like 70% of the work in the area. Uh, It was a huge thing. And that, that went, you know, our total sign business was about 13 or 14 years. And in the early 90s, 9091, the economy, you know, was always up and down. Uh, and I learned a lot about the sign business, uh, the business side of it, yeah. and how difficult it was to go through these cycles. And I had learned that every sign company, there were, there was sign companies from the early 30s that Nothing had changed for them. I, I knew them quite well, and I saw that they go through the same cycle even after all those years of, of experience being in the business. And so I decided that's really not going to change. Yeah. And I was tired of the cycle of up and down with the economy. And so in 91, I began to sell off all of my equipment, uh, laid everybody off, and I started brokering a little bit, but I, I sold my equipment to a, a wholesale manufacturer. I trained all their employees how to use the equipment, and they were a neon plant, and all they did was neon, and this gave them the ability to, to build the whole thing. Yeah. And so they went into the wholesale sign manufacturing uh, with our equipment and our training, and then I was able to broker for a little bit, uh, any of the sales and hire crews to go install them. And that was just a short period of time, uh, less than a year. And and then that was it. We were able to close that door. And I went to work for a trade show exhibit company in Anaheim. Wow. Um, and uh, that used a lot of my same skills. My brother worked for them, and he said, hey, they have an opening for a manager I uh, actually got hired and was his boss. So, oh, no. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and and the same thing. You know, I I fit in really well there. the The company was a young, well, not a young company, but a a, um, a very limited company in what they would do. They did a modular display uh, exhibit system yeah. and no custom work. And so, bringing me in and a cabinet maker, they hired 
me and this other guy who were both self-employed prior to that. He had a cabinet shop. I had the sign company. And the two of us, our skill sets, were able to implement their company with a custom fabrication. And so we started building huge, big exhibits, uh, a lot of them for the music industry and the motorcycle industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did get a touch you know, into the NAM show and the, all the different music companies that we built exhibits for. Um, so that was kind of fun. You know, it was exciting to be connected with that industry. Um, I had not really gotten into music yet. And during those 14 years that Ann and I had the, all those employees, the music really died for us. You know, yeah. it was in the closet. We didn't get to play or do much music at all. You're just too busy. Yeah, too busy. Yeah. So it was getting that job at the exhibit company, and that lasted eight years. But um, um, during the very first month of my employment there, uh, Ann calls me, hurry home. We're having a band rehearsal. <laughs> so she immediately jumped into the opportunity to get music back into our lives and um, started a, a bluegrass band. Oh, neat. And, uh, so, and we had that bluegrass band for six years, and it was fun. We did festivals, and you know, it, it, was, a, it was a fun time. Gave me a little more uh, early experience for performing. Yeah. You know. Uh, so did you, um, was bluegrass part of your upbringing listening as well? Or is Not it, so much. No. That was Anne's influence. Yeah. You know, I, like I said, I was art. I didn't have much, you know, background with any kind of music really, other than just playing the guitar. Um, and so in our bluegrass set, we'd always use a John Denver song or two. You know, he had some uh, bluegrassy songs, and so we'd always do that, or Country Roads or something that yeah. fit in the set because the way I sound. Yeah. And so that became a popular part of our bluegrass show, you know, was the John Denver song. So it, it did give us a glimpse of maybe something that people wanted to hear. So what, what made you... Uh, kind of divert from that into I'm assuming from there you went into putting together this John Denver show right it it was it was um, right after uh, the 9-11 that things really fell apart in the trade show business yeah Uh, the company uh, that I was with uh, boy you know that I had grown in that company over the eight years to become art director and manager of the uh, art department. I became one of their top salesmen as well. You know, I was selling since I had my sell salesman experience with the sign company we owned. Uh, I became one of their uh, sales, the top sales manager. You know, and I I grew that company from like a one. Point three million to three point seven, yeah. you know, in the, in about a three year period, yeah. and um, so it was one of those things that um, became uh, apparent that I, I I was better suited th- there for the company because of the money and the yeah. owner was real thrilled to see that kind of growth, um, but after nine eleven. Uh, all of our big accounts, which were mostly motorcycle, we had Suzuki, we had Triumph, you know, Indian, you know, Bell Helmets, all these big motorcycle accounts yeah. had uh, froze. They just said, well, we don't know what's going on. Trade shows were canceled. And about a year of stall, 
It and really affected everything. It too. did. It really did. And so we didn't have, um, we didn't have much choice. Things were not good. You know, the economy being like it was with the trade shows. I suggested to the owner that we go back, that we back up, go back to our uh, roots with the um, smaller exhibits of his modular system that he was selling, and um, that we could survive this lull if we did that yeah. as sales manager uh, you know i i said that's what's going to sell and he didn't want to do that he didn't feel like that was where he wanted to go he kept holding on for the large sales we had some stuff uh, pending in the works with suzuki and a few other big companies uh for these huge exhibits that were you know three hundred thousand dollars instead of twenty five thousand dollars yeah. you know but they didn't want to take the advice and um none of those contracts closed uh because the companies just couldn't make it in their mind they were afraid to make that kind of commitment not knowing what was happening with the industry yeah. and so um Things just got worse, and at some point they brought me in. They said, well, we can't afford to pay you anymore. <laughs> you know, we're going to have to furlough you. If we recover, we'll bring you back. Yeah. You know, and um, I knew already, I knew that their mentality, their stubbornness to not change with the times was going to be the end of them. And I thought, well, there's not going to be anything to come back to. Yeah. And so I... Uh, I left and I immediately got a call from a huge exhibit company. They were 10 times the size of the one I was working at, wanting me to come work for them because uh, they had heard I'd been laid off. Yeah. And so I was, you know, had enough success in the business to where the word was out that I should, you know, maybe uh, go work for them. And I went. I went to the meeting. I interviewed and then we sat and talked with together you know the owner of the of that other corporation and yeah. and i just realized i'm sitting there i'm not really hearing anything he's saying yeah. <laughs> it was like a peanuts episode want 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 you know and i realized wow i really don't want to do this <laughs> so i i called in you know and i said I, i'm not going to take this uh, a job offer i let's go do music i had already done the voiceover work for the CBS movie, the John Denver story. Mm -hmm. That happened while I was working at the exhibit company. Yeah. You know, and so I had that credit. And I thought, let's, you know, we like music. Let's just go try it. I've got enough stockpiled to try, you know, play for two years. And let's just see what happens in two years. Yeah. And she was all for it. She says, Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, so I went after it uh, with our business background. And, you know, I, just thought, well, let me go sell myself, you know, instead of somebody else's product, you know, and uh, started focusing on what that would be. And after two years, we had some limited success. We'd gotten a show in Las Vegas on a few weekends and, you know, got a taste of what that would be like. It was very successful. Yeah. But overall, it wasn't enough. Yeah. You know, the money was not big enough to make a career out of it after two years. And I said, well, let's... Let's go find regular jobs again. And somebody in Vegas, a photographer, said, oh, no, no, no. You're just getting started. You've got something here. You need to try 
other things. He says, have you looked at cruise ships? And I, no, why, why would I look at a cruise ship? Yeah. I had no idea. I had no idea what the industry would give. Um, and so I shotgunned out some letters to cruise ships, finding out what they do. And Holland America uh, wrote back in a, like a week wow. and said, my boss wants me to hire you um, and gave us a contract for three different ships and uh, we went to the first one in Cabo, San Lucas. Uh, we, they flew us out. We had no idea what we were doing, none at all. You know, um, we didn't know what a ship show was. We we knew that they had a band. We knew we needed to bring charts. Yeah, um, they told us that much. Um, so have, I, you, have you been on a cruise before then? No, first time on the ship. First time on the ship. Yeah, so it would be yeah. yeah pretty overwhelming. It is, you know, because we we're, we're totally green. We've never done a show where we've used charts. Yeah. Um, at that point in our music experience, being with the bluegrass and doing shows and stuff, I had enough performance time in front of audiences doing bluegrass yeah. at festivals and stuff. So I wasn't too worried about that part of it. Um, but the chart thing, you know, I had done an outdoor concert with John's band. It was sort of a birthday present to myself. Yeah. You know, I had met some of them in Aspen at some of the fan gatherings, and I was just a fan, and I was able to contact John's guitar player and say, hey, what would you guys think about coming out and doing a concert outside at a botanic garden? Um, and they said, sure, why not? You know, so it was thrilling. I got to actually hire John's band, do an outdoor concert of John Denver music, you know, in this botanic garden. And I thought, I told Ann, I said, well, it's just, it's just a birthday present. I, it'll, you know, I just yeah. want to do this once in my life yeah. and then it'll, I'll, it'll be out of my system. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, uh, uh, we did that and it went over great, but that gave me that connection with them. And so when the ship thing came around, I I didn't have charts. So I called the guitar player. I said, do you have charts for John's music? Yeah. And he goes, oh, yeah, sure. And he sends me these PDFs. Uh, and I get on the ship. Wow. You know, and we were out there at Cabo, get dropped off with the taxi, and we could see the ship. Uh, it's out in the bay, you know, but we don't know how to get to get it. There, yeah. We have no idea. You know, no one's given us any information. You know, it's like, how do we get there? And then this little ship shows up, little boat shows up. A little people, tender, yeah. Yeah, a little tender boat comes up. We didn't know idea what a tender was. No, you wouldn't. No. <laughs> and, and these people get off, and uh, these passengers from are obviously from the ship, and we go, oh, that's how you get to the ship. I see. It's a little boat. Okay. Uh, and the, one of the ladies gets off the ship, boat, tender boat, and she comes over and goes, oh, I, I hope you're our new entertainment because what we've had has been awful. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so now immediately we're like, oh, God. We, uh, I don't Pleasure. know what we're doing. Yeah. You know? And so we, we finally make our way to the ship. Uh, we get kind of oriented to what's going on. We meet with the music director. We hand him our charts, and he goes, "What are these?" He has no idea. He's looking at them. It's like these aren't charts. We don't know. You know. I said, "Oh, well, we got them right from John's band. You know, they're Nashville number, number charts." charts. 
<laughs> and these guys are reading notation, not number charts. They would know anything about that. Probably. No, not at all. No. Uh, and I explained to him how it worked, and he goes, oh, I get it. That's great. But my guys can't read this. So we sat down with him in his cabin, and he translated it in um, finale, yeah. you know, into some form of a chart. And he was great that he did that. You know, it was, uh, uh, and he was a phenomenal pianist. You know, and over the years he became a really good friend. Um, but we did our first show. It went great. You know, the audiences were like, "Oh my God, what was that?" And then the cruise director and the band was like, "We've never." seen a show like this and we don't have any reference we don't know what they're talking about yeah how could you have never seen a show like this you know um but it was what was going on in our mind but we were just going okay good so we got, we was got it that. you and and it was Ann and, and i and the backup band it, yeah. it was Ann and i and and his band yeah. you know and they did a great job yeah. thank god we had him he was a beautiful pianist and he you know was able to take those real rudimentary charts yeah. and make beautiful music with his band um so what do you remember what ship that was it was the amsterdam okay yeah 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 it was doing a uh trip from seattle to uh rio okay yeah and and so we got on like day 13 or 14 of the trip and uh already the passengers were starved for something different you know yeah. even that early on but uh it went so well that the cruise director asked if we could extend and do a second show. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, again, back to the cabin with the music director yeah. and play through some other set of music. Uh, we had to create a second show, yeah. you know, and he did that. And, and we uh, had to get our yellow fever shots and we had to, you know, cause we, we, we couldn't go any further than uh, Costa Rica yeah. with what our status. You know, we we needed to get the yellow fever shots and all this other stuff you know, if we were going to stay on. And the ship just took care of all of that. Uh, they, they they had it all handled, and they called back home to Grandma to say, "You're watching the kids for a couple more days." You know, <laughs> <laughs> surprise. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and we did a second show, and it was just a huge hit. We get home. And uh, the home office for Holland America called, said, wow, you know, great shows. The reviews were off the charts. We would like you to go more, longer, more often. Yeah. You know, we go everywhere all the time. Where do you want to go? And um, I said, well, you know, we've got two kids. Grandma can't watch these kids that much. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and they said, we'll take care of that. And they brought us all. They took the whole family right. uh, to Alaska for like eight weeks. Uh, and we were all on a ship. And my oldest son says, Dad, I sure love your job. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he would. Yeah. It's, it's unusual for you to contact the cruise ship directly and get a reply that quickly. It is. Um, nowadays... Trying to actually get a hold of someone at a cruise ship is next to impossible. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, there was something about this whole thing of me being in this business that had that phenomenon all through. Yeah. Um, backing up to when I was working at the exhibit company, I'm in Aspen on vacation with this fan gathering that we had heard about. And so we went on vacation during that time to see what that was about. While I'm in Aspen with all these fans, 
um, the the words out that CBS is making a movie about John's life, and so I get home and I'm at the you know exhibit company and I make a phone call to CBS. I looked it up, you know, CBS yeah. corporate number. And I call this number. I have no idea who I'm going to get, yeah. if I'm going to get anybody. They answered the phone. I said, well, I'm trying to connect with the person doing the music for the John Denver story. And they go, hold, please. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go through my index. They, they patched me right through to the guy. Wow. And so I'm talking to Mike Flicker, who's the guy who was in charge of all the incidental music for the show. And I said, I, you know, I... I have a, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're looking for someone who sounds like John Denver for the movie. And they says, yeah, we are. You know, we've got a couple already, but send me something. And he gives me the address. And I'm in Anaheim at the exhibit company. He's in Burbank. Yeah. I happen to have this real homemade CD that a friend of mine did at his home studio. Out of a lark. We, you know, nothing professional. It yeah. was somewhat professional. He had a good studio. And he's always been a John Denver fan, and he could play all the licks, and he was a great musician. And so he put this little thing together that became a demo tape. You know? yeah. And so I put it in an envelope on a courier. I sent it to Burbank that day. And at 5 o'clock, he's calling me. says, this is great. You know, and later that year, I'm in the studio doing this voiceover. So it was just this phone call, yeah. you know, boom, boom, boom. And I'm the voice in the John Denver movie, you know, doing John as a, in the early years, uh, part of that film. And Holland America was the same thing. You know, it was just like, oh, there's this thing called cruise ship. So, okay, I'll look them up. I find it's like six different cruise lines, not knowing that they were probably all the same cruise line. Yeah, <laughs> you know, back then, you know. But I sent it, and uh, and her boss, Bill Prince, was the head of entertainment who I sent it to, and he hands it to this lady that's in charge of hiring all the acts, and says, "I don't know what you do, but my boss wants me to hire you." It wow. was just that easy, you know. And she asked me after I got back from that first contract, "Do you have an agent?" And I immediately like panicked, went, uh, do I have to? <laughs> yeah. She says, no, actually, it'd be better if you, maybe if you didn't. Yeah. You know, you know, we can work direct. And I come to find out I was a very unique situation. I was one of the few that didn't have an agent over all the years that we've worked with Hall in America. Everybody has an agent. Yes. I'm one of the few that don't. And that relationship made all the difference in the world because when the economy swayed and they stopped hiring as much, I still had that direct connection. I would still get jobs when other acts wouldn't, you know, so it was... Because it was an easy connection. It was an it easy was, connection. Yeah. And, and it still is today. Everything mm -hmm. switched. You know, I used to be on ships in the early days because we didn't have enough land work to make a career. Ships became this huge support. A huge base for us. Yeah. Um, I was on a Holland America ship anywhere from thirty to forty weeks in a year, wow. you know, and it was a huge foundation, and it gave me a really good time to uh, hone the the craft or the show. Yeah. So, do you do many uh, ships now? No, yeah. it it kind uh, it's another another economy. Well, the bank collapse, yes. you know, made Holland America pause you know for a long time um and the hires just kind of dried up and it was just before the alaska season when that happened and 
I relied on the Alaska season for a lot of work from the cruise ships. Is that the route you did most most often? It, you know, she didn't uh, she didn't send us too far from the North America. Yeah. We would do the Caribbean or or Mexico, Riviera, uh, Alaska, and New England. You know, we never went too much further than that, those yeah. those ports. Uh, I knew acts were going over to Europe and they were doing that, but we never did that and. Uh, Alaska was a perfect fit for our show. Yeah, it's fantastic. You know, it, it, it's just a, an amazing connection with John's music and the wilderness and all that. So we always looked forward to that. And she would always put us on these seven-day cruises, north-south, north-south. Yeah. We stayed on for, like, the first contract was eight weeks, going back and forth, you know, doing our show each direction. And... Um, so it was a an amazing filler for our calendar, you know. And when that crunch bank crunch happened, and they froze, it happened just before that period, and the contracts didn't come in as usual. And I started writing and saying, you know, hey, you know, and the rea- the the response was nothing. There was no response. They weren't writing back. You know, very stressful, as you yeah. know. You know, you 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 reach out to somebody trying to have them buy your show, especially if it's somebody that's bought your show before, and you get zero response, it makes you wonder, what did I do? Yeah, what did we do? What did we do wrong, you know? And is this coming in? Is it not coming in? And it was a critical time. And finally, Cheryl, uh, in Seattle, she's the girl that I have my relationship with, the contracts with, and she, she says, things are just not good you know they're they're so unsettled and she has her hands tied she can't hire she's been told to freeze and not do any hires until they figure it out and then they did a full re rework of what they're doing in entertainment because of that crunch and they ended up putting in uh, these cast shows that ran four or five nights out of a seven-day cruise. And then the odd night that was left would go to a comedian or a magician. Yeah. And they stopped hiring singers uh, for seven-day cruises. So that it eliminated a good chunk, a majority of the ships that they were itineraries, because most of their itineraries were seven-day cruises. Yeah. And so it only left her the opportunity to hire us for anything longer than seven days. So the amount of work, greatly reduced but at the same time she also says you know i can't i can't deal with the acts that i have to hire expecting me to fill their calendar she says i I can't i can't do that and so it gave us the insight early enough to where we could look to land and start building uh, something on land we connected with a ship act who had just bought into an agency Uh, It was his agent, and this agency had been around for 100 years uh, that he was uh, repped by, and uh, it was multi-generation, like sixth generation or something, you know, that uh, had owned this agency, and the husband and wife that had currently owned it, the husband passed away, and it left the wife going, do I want to keep going? Well, that act being repped by them said, well, I, I need to keep going. And so he was successful enough. He bought into her uh, agency and became her partner um, and kept it going. And yeah. with his connection in the business, he brought in a lot of new acts, and we were one of them. And so the timing couldn't have been more perfect. You know, we got brought into this 
really well-established agency who immediately got us hooked into some of the touring and it just sort of was this natural blend. We went from ships to land just as easy as that and we never saw a, 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 a slowdown. A slowdown. Yeah. All right. That's pretty amazing. I mean, yeah. just those three little things just most people wait a lifetime for yes. one, of, one of those <laughs> and and some of them never get it right 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 so it just kind of fell in place for you really right really so great. you know you can't help but think I, this is what i was meant to do yeah yeah so at that point i imagine you'd have to put a a band together yes yeah because yeah, now we're needing a band and and we had um we had a, a drummer that was with us in in our homegrown band you know that, that we would do um and Ann's brother was a keyboard player, not a great keyboard player, but he, you know, may do. Um, and then we had a friend who was a property management consultant, not a musician, but he played a, a little bit of bass. And, yeah. and so that was kind of our raw group, you know. And the drummer that we had was a very good drummer. He's, he's still with us. You've met him, Gene. Yeah. And... Um, his career started really on ships as well. He met his wife on a ship. She was a dancer. He was in the band. And um, so when we, and Gene has played the Houston circuit. He's a Texan. So he was in Houston during those great times when bands worked every night, you yeah. know, and the club scene in Houston on the, on the loop around the city always was, you know, steaming with work, you know, and, and, he worked every night, and he just was an amazing drummer for that, and he's worked with some amazing people over the years. Um, so he had a perspective, you know, that we didn't have. Yeah. He had that experience. And at some point as we were growing, he says, you're not going to go anywhere with this band. You need a more pro band. You know, these guys are not pro, and it's hurting you. And he was right. So, you know, we even including himself. Yeah. You know, well, you nice know, he, for him to say that, you know, he probably he, wasn't easy for him to say it. But, right. Well, yeah. you know, and he, he was he was the band member the longest of anybody. You know, he he knew, the, you know, what he was doing and we we could always count on him. He had a great touch for John's music, yeah. um, wasn't overbearing. Um, and so f he's been with us longer than anybody in the group. Uh but the bass player was not going to, he was not pro professional, and the keyboard, Ann's brother was not good enough. So we, we found professional people. And then also we had the relationship with John's guys. So at any time that, I, that they were available in the right area, I could bring one of John's players in. Um, and I it realized that this is what's making the difference, this pro band is, uh, is what is needed to do this as a career. Yeah. You know, you're delivering the best that it can possibly be, you know. So do you remember your your first land gig? Uh, actual paid land yeah. gig, boy. Yes, I think I do. It it, it was um, uh, near home, a town called Claremont. They had a dinner theater. And we had been part, as a bluegrass band, we'd been part of the Claremont Folk Festival for years. Yeah. The festival lasted, you know, the, the 
the guy that we were working with who ran it, ran it for 25 years. And um, we were in the last five or six years of that festival existence. And um, we thought, well, we'll do a fundraiser for the festival. And we did it at this dinner theater in Claremont. And they weren't doing that. They just did plays. Yeah. And, you know, and their production wouldn't allow it. There was no time between one show and the next to uh, reset staging and all that and rehearsals and all so we found a place that you know his he had a a, a show ending like south pacific or whatever it was and yeah. and the sound of music coming up next uh, you know for the next three months or whatever it was and there was a day when they were down you know in between those two productions and we said well what if we do that day and he said well, okay we'll give that a try and so we did and it was very successful it was a great great fundraiser it filled the place and he lit up he as an owner of this theater went hmm yeah there's an idea and it began his summer series where he started doing concerts in between shows um no matter what the set was it yeah. became the backdrop yeah. you know <laughs> so, yeah i've done a few of those yeah. yeah um and he he credits us for that he's got a quite a big successful series and it's added a lot to his theater to have those the music events uh at the same time as his plays so that was kind of one of the first ones um so you've moved on to you're booking yourself now yeah now. you know we 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 never had an exclusive arrangement with uh, an agent yeah. um we treated it as such you know if they could do it we would it would, if we got leads we would give it to them and they would close it um and we treated them with with that kind of uh relationship as though they were exclusive but in the long run um it still was not greatly productive you know the one agency was not filling our calendar i analyzed it one year i said okay i just need to know and i started looking at the calendar and i realized ann had booked like a hundred shows to their 12 yeah you know and i thought okay this is silly now their shows their 12 were great they were bigger venues maybe uh in, in on average than what ann was booking but still you know, we were doing most of that. I had a relationship with the Kingston Trio, and uh, George Groves uh, was the current uh, main singer and performer in the group, and we did a hootenanny or two with them, and um, we got to talking about that, and because the Kingston Trio's been repped by almost everybody, you know, at some yeah. point in time, and, and all the different eras of the Kingston Trio at one point or another had an exclusive contract with an agency, and even um, Philip Morris. Uh, not Philip Morris. Um, Will Morris. Will, Will, William Morris. Mm -hmm. And um, he said at the point that they signed exclusivity with William Morris, the work stopped. Yeah. It was just terrible. Because now they're one of 3,000. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Instead of one of 10 or one of five or one of three or right. one right. of one. And so it was really good advice. He says, don't ever sign. He says, it's, it's a death yeah. to your career it's only great if you're already a huge star right that's who they want that's what yeah. they want everything else is just well then they're just yeah. answering the phone yeah and if they happen to get a call for you right they'll take it but right. they're not out there every day right. calling and looking for right. for work for jim curry that's it just if it gets called in right. one thing is it's a great idea uh, <laughs> i mean it happens up here there's agencies up here like that 
I mean, all over the world, the same thing happens. Um, yeah. But, you know, I tell so many people, if you could do it yourself, do it yourself. Right. And, you know, and it's not like we don't use agents. Mm-hmm. Um, these agents have their niche. Every agent has their little sugar stick group of buyers. Yeah. And, and those buyers will buy from them. And so it's like, sure, sell us. You know, you're just not going to be the, exclusive. The States is a little different than um, in Canada. I mean, Canada has its zones where there are some agents where they kind of work the East Coast or the West Coast. or um, But mostly uh, anything that's done up here, we kind of work the whole country. Because you have to, because there's not yes. as, as many places to right, play. Right, right. Where the U.S. is very, I find, very zoned. Maybe you got a northwestern oh, yeah, agent yeah. or right. you know, southwest agent, and or this state they just look after the state. That's right. In Canada, in Canada, basically, our, our population is the population of California. Oh wow! So yeah, right, right. It's like being, yeah, an agent a in California. larger region, yeah. same number of places. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and that's that's the way it is. We we know that these agents are good in their niche, and we just realize that's what we have to tap into is let them sell us. Yeah. Nothing is exclusive. Um, if you want to sell us, that's fine. And Anne manages the calendar and the exclusivity and the re- restrictions you know, on, on her side of things. So it doesn't step on anybody. Yeah. You know, you have to, that's, that's a big task. When you work 150 shows a year, you know, you're bound to have some collisions. And so you have to be diligent. And that's where Anne comes in. She spends a lot of time managing the calendar. And we've got Diane Ireland is a, almost a permanent you know employee she's our flute player but she she sells a lot of symphony shows and she started picking up a lot more uh regular theaters and performing arts centers as well and it's but between the two of them it can get amazingly busy yeah. uh, but they they're really good at it you know we there's nobody better than ourselves to look at the calendar and go let's put something here you know yeah. and and that works you know and it's good because it's still yourself but it's separated from you the artist right right it's not right jim curry uh, yeah i never say hey I, i'm a great singer because it's so hard to do <laughs> i never do that no yeah. but yeah. a lot of people do but it, it's it's a tough thing to do but yeah. so you've got and uh diane both working at that that's right. re- but they're closely connected they're in the show but, right yeah right they perfect. understand it really well and they yeah. can they can really speak to it accurately you know um they they can handle a lot too you know some of the agents they they only take it to the sales part they don't do any of the advancing or you know uh, just make the deal work yeah they make the deal and they're out of it well that's not diane and ann they they take it all the way through you know they do the itinerary they they're part of the uh, hotel booking the airfare i mean they really are more management you know on top of selling so it's a great combination so working and and singing the songs and music of John Denver, which I know is this week, it's certainly a different crowd. Like it's it's interesting because they're not really country fans, right? And they're not really kind of rock fans. <laughs> they're somewhere in between, right? What like last night at the show, we had tons of new people. Like right. I've never been to the theater before which is great. Yeah, we like uh, to see that. Yeah. But John's really, John's music really kind of, it, there's a certain really, crosses over a lot of different people. 
if you're a country fan, you're going to like it. If you're a rock and roll fan, you'll like it. But the actual real D- John Denver fans, it's it's. I'm trying to find a where is that right. middle ground, right? But right. they certainly the diehards, the ones that really love John Denver, um, they're really you know that's what they like. Right. Well, and that's why we see that often. Yeah. You know, is that we'll come into a theater that typically is a community following, yeah. you know, and and they'll tell us how stunned they were because there's so many people traveling from outside of their community to come see this show that they've sold so many tickets that are not, you know, their normal patrons. Uh, patrons. Yeah. And... Um, uh, it, it's a it's a blessing and a curse. I mean, you know, it, because the it is those fans that will travel and come see us, and we're thrilled about that. Yeah. But it's also an indication that the concentration of fans is not strong in any one place. That it takes a large, you know, region to bring them to one place. Yes. We're glad to be out there doing as many shows as we are because it's difficult to get a full audience from one community and going one place to another, we get closer to them where people will travel and come see the show. Um, uh, we had one in uh, Grand Junction, Colorado, which we don't play yeah. uh, ever except this one time. And it's a 1,500-seat theater, and it's a community type of thing, and they never fill it. You know, it's big for them. Yeah. Well, it sold out, and it was that. It was all they couldn't believe the phone ringing from outside the state and people coming to see the show. Uh, so it's it's good to see. But I think that was that was a curse for John was that classification. Where does he fit? In in his early years, it was folk. It was easy. Yeah, he fit right in there with Dylan and Baez and all these other folkies, you know, that uh, of that era. Um, and then as it grew into I guess pop of that time is where he fit best. But when that changed and it moved on and that pop sound went into something else, he was left with no category. And the radios didn't know where to put him because they were so niche-oriented. The radios then were, you know, there wasn't a a station doing a mix. It was always either country, rock, smooth jazz, you know, <laughs> classical, you know, and he didn't fit any of them. Yeah. So it, it, it was a problem. I think that was part of the uh, decline in his radio play. Yeah, it would be, uh, you could see that happening for sure because it really separated. And you can sort of see that in the audience. It's it's probably, that's why you have a lot of people come out who aren't, aren't your typical right. patrons. Right, right. Because they split, they did probably have a, tough time finding a spot where they want to go see the music they like too right it's, right right it's not it's not out there as much so as far as uh john denver do you have uh i'm assuming you saw Jen De- john in concert i did yeah. uh about four or five times yeah. no, probably four and three of those were with ann one was in houston before i moved back yeah yeah and you have a connection with with John's uh, foundation. Yes. Um, yeah. You know that when John died, um, he was not married. So mm-hmm. both wives he was divorced from. So the estate became uh, just the children. 
Yeah. You know, his early adopted children with Annie was Anna Kate and Zach uh, Zachary, and and then his second marriage to Cassandra Delaney, an Australian girl. Um, they had a child, Jesse Jesse Bell, and Jesse and Anna Kate and Zach are the estate. So, and it's managed by a company in in Denver. Yeah. So, do you? Um, I know on the show you've mentioned one of the songs you sang mm-hmm. uh, in the show uh, that you had to get permission to, yes. to sing that particular one. Right. Yeah. Um, is there? Have you had any other dealings with with them at all? Or yes. Yeah. You know, over the years, um, uh, we've tried to be supportive. You know, as for doing what we do and for what it does for us. I mean, this music has made a life for us. And so giving back, you know, and supporting the kids uh, and their estate and making sure that, you know, everything we do is legitimate, all the licensing, all the fees, everything that we do is paid. So it goes to the estate, you know, and um, we're conscious about that. And and we've reached out to the management offering some kind of relationship where we're more if we could be sanctioned and you know brought into a licensing kind of a thing we would do that yeah. they don't know how to do that they not they don't see a way of doing that they don't you know they don't uh, understand it i kind of equated it to my trade show years and a lot of our motorcycle accounts you know all the people that make all the leathers for harley davidson or you know they also did leathers with fender guitar branding on it it was all a licensing thing and yeah. you know you just they're not harley and they're not fender but they license the use of the name and so i pitched that to them to say well why don't you brand the you know us as a licensed show and we pay the estate an annual fee to be licensed and it helps the state, you know, we're willing to do that. Um, and they, they not, they're not comfortable with that yet. You know, it wasn't something that they've ever heard of. So it was new and there, but over the years, the relationship is built. I can call them. They know who I am. They call me, you know, it's got a good relationship with them. And, um, I've not been pushy. I've been, relaxed with them to, you know, they like what we're doing. They've expressed how much they like what we're doing. It helps them that we're doing a good show and it keeps the music, you know, relevant and current in the market. And a lot of people still hearing it. Uh, and they feel good about that. So they've, they've been good about letting us do what we want. You know, we've pretty much got an open door for any creative ideas we might want to do. Yeah. Um, they, they did a, uh, they were very instrumental in the, in the beginning of the Colorado music hall of fame. Uh, there's a guy from A and E, um, that has wanted a Colorado music hall of fame. And for 10 years he was trying to create a hall of fame. And it wasn't until the John Denver state connected with him that everything was able to happen. And so they finally had that form in 2011, I think it was. And John was the first inductee into it. And I got to, um, I was the, uh, 
provider of the music scores for the Boulder Symphony to play. I right. I own all of the uh, John Denver arrangements yeah. for orchestra, which was another long story, but it's it, it, it was something that we felt we wanted to do. We wanted to have this show at an orchestra level with symphonies. Uh, I contacted Lee Holdridge, who was the one who wrote all the music for John for the orchestras, and he told me that the music had been destroyed. When John died, there were trunk loads, trunk loads of film of, of scores and parts yeah. for an orchestra to play, uh, stored with a librarian in California. And the manager at the time, which is not the current management, this was a earlier management, um, didn't see a, a need to keep it. They you know, with without John there to sing, yeah. the scores were pointless, you know, in his mind. And so they didn't want to continue paying storage on them and didn't pay the librarian and they were just, you know, gotten rid of. Yeah. And so Lee had his originals. I said, well, let's rebuild them. And he was grateful for that. He volunteered his time to oversee the project. I hired two different musicians to transcribe everything back into a digital program and yeah. save all this music that was uh, lost and began to sell it to orchestras. And so we had the music for for the orchestras and this induction of John into the Hall of Fame needed you know scores and I provided those and I was given a part in the ceremony uh, because of that. And I sang two songs basically, uh, Calypso and Perhaps Love with the symphony. And uh, it was a huge, you know, ovation for for what I was doing uh, with perhaps love. It was one of the big moments of the night. It was yeah. a neat thing. So the estate kind of noticed. Yeah, you know, they could see. Okay, there's something here. Um, Olivia Newton John hosted the show. It was very cool. You know, the nitty gritty dirt band. So it was a big big night. Um, but our relationship kind of solidified there a little bit. You know, and uh, the family was a little more comfortable with the idea of a tribute artist, you know, because it's, it's difficult because they had that same perception. Yeah. You know, Annie and the kids, Cassandra, you know, looking at what we do without ever seeing our show had no idea what it was. Yeah. And so seeing me perform in the induction, it kind of opened that door a little bit. They got a little more... Uh, uh, open to the idea of what we do. Yeah. Um, and then over the years, uh, we wanted to record that last song of John's that was never recorded. Uh, Lee had the orchestration for it. We rebuilt that score. We've performed it, you know, with the symphonies um, uh, live, but we're still we're restricted to recording it. It was never published by yeah. John. And so it's a real unusual scenario that an artist, a writer write something that he never publishes yeah. and try to get it published ourselves. Uh, we knew it was a, a hurdle, and but we stayed diligent, and uh, eventually it became a... We, I would always check. I would go on to the website that licensed songs, and I would look. Yeah. And it was never there. And I would call the agent, you know, I'd call the uh, state asking, you know, are they going to release it? And they would just, no, we're not ready to do that yet. We're still thinking we might find it, a version that John had recorded that they could release first. It just yeah. never happened. And then one day there it was. And so I immediately bought the licensing. I called Lee Holdridge. I said, it's there. We were just in the middle of, of recording our newest CD. And 
this was not part of it. Um, but I called Lee. I said, I, the licensing came available. And he goes, great. Let's record it now before somebody does it wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so I called uh, Chris Knoll, who was producing our CD at the time. I said, we're adding a song. And so next week we were in his studio and we laid down the band parts and my vocals and we sent it to Lee Holdridge and he added the orchestra to it. Nice. And it's one of the best cuts on the new CD. But, you know, so we finally had it. And uh, there's a, another song that's in the same scenario. It's called Blue Water World. Yeah. And there's only some video of John singing it in Hawaii. He just wrote it for an event he was doing there. And we did a version of it in the studio. We went and laid it down. We got the whole thing done and mixed. But it's not published, and the estate, we're back into that waiting pattern again. It's yeah. like, uh, okay, someday maybe they'll let us release it. You know, I want to zip back to um, the scores mm -hmm. um, and that whole thing now. So what what's happening now with... Uh, orchestras and and, oh my. and scores and yes and uh maybe fill us in a little bit what's the disaster uh, yeah yeah there's the the publishers a lot of the major publishers sony uh, alfred music how leonard you know some of the big big players in the industry uh, as publishers who are you know they they make a deal with the artist or the writer of the song really yeah. not the artist but the writer of the song to publish their song um, and try to put it into the market and make money for the writer. Yeah. Uh, that's the publisher's job. And so many of the big publishers have recently, within the last two years, have signed in an exclusive contract with a company called Tresona. And Tresona's job is to be kind of the watchdog or the... Uh, policing the industry, looking for people using printed music, which is used in symphonies, uh, high school bands, marching bands, uh, choirs, uh, in that scenario where a duplication of a printed music is being read by a, by a musician. And to make sure that those printed pieces are copyrighted and licensed. And uh, it's it's very new to the industry and people yeah. would think that no this has been law for copyright law for a long time. And in, and in some ways it has been, but uh, the interpretation is what's changed. And because uh, a writer will write his music out, get it copyrighted and have the copyright license to control it. Uh, the publisher is given a percentage of the publishing rights, which is different than the copyright. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the owner of the copyright is the controlling factor, not the publisher. Yeah. But both have some say as to how it gets distributed. And Tresona has come in and said that symphonies, uh, using arrangements of a song, because typically what will happen is um, an artist who's singing or performing or a symphony who's just performing an instrumental version of something will take, a let's say, a Beatles song and they'll do an arrangement of it for the orchestra or for their marching band or their choir. Yeah. And that arrangement is done by somebody other than the original copyright 
owner, yeah. not the not Paul McCartney. You know, he's not doing that arrangement for the orchestra. Somebody yeah. else is. Well, the the copyright uh, law. Um, based on Tresona's and the publisher's interpretation has been that 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 arrangement, even though somebody else wrote it, is the property of Paul McCartney and not the writer of the arrangement. And that's a new interpretation that has caused a an uproar in the industry. Uh, there's There's so many people, orchestras, performers, who are struggling to survive yeah. this crunch because it, it equates down to once you pay what they've determined to be a an arrangement license, yeah. which is something that's never been heard of before. You need a license to do an arrangement with yeah. something new. Um, and it's per song. It's per song. We're not talking per show. We're talking no, no, per song. Per song. Per song. Yeah. And then... The uh, use of the printed music in a performance is also a fee. You have to rent it to play it yeah. is a new concept. Uh, most of the orchestras have libraries, you know, basements filled with music that they've purchased yeah. or that they've arranged for themselves. Their own musicians or conductor has made an arrangement for that orchestra and it's been printed and published for, or printed, not published, but printed for them to play live. Yeah. And live performances are covered under an ASCAP or BMI license to perform it live. You pay to perform it live. Yeah. And every time we sing a song live, the estate gets, you know, a piece of that um, uh, money yeah. for performing performing it live, and the orchestras have been doing that too. All the orchestras, all the bands, yeah, you know, everybody pays that performance fee. This has come in on top. It's almost like double dipping. Yes, and and it's causing a big uproar. And as to date, you know, there have been some cease and desist orders coming from Tresona saying you, as an orchestra, cannot play this music without it being licensed. Um, so what type of what type of money are they asking for? Oh, uh, you know, it, it's it. Yeah. The the biggest problem is the retroactive action that they're allowed to do. They have a three-year window to go back and fine an orchestra or an artist for using the music for the past three years. Yeah, and and every performance that you've done of that song is fined, and they call it a release fee. Yeah. The release fee is equivalent to the original arrangement license fee. So if you do this Beatles song, let's say, um, and you're using an arrangement that is unlicensed, first you need to register it with them, with Tresona, uh, to get the license fee. Let's say it's $450 for that one song. Yeah. Uh, the release fee is the same for every time you've performed it. So now you have to... Now you have however many times you've performed it in three yeah. years to pay this penalty of $450 plus the $450. And that's, and, and that's one song. And that's one song out of, out of 20 yeah. in, a, in an evening. And then, uh, and for three years, you know. That's garbage. <clears throat> yeah. I hate that. I mean, oh yeah, it's they should not be allowed to do that. Well, they're not being real successful yet. Yeah. The industry has pushed back. Um, There's a press release that said uh, that Tresona and the major publishers have come together with the large orchestra associations and came upon this landmark agreement to do this opt-in 
contract agreement to avoid legal action against them by opting in for this plan of three years limit and pay these fees um, to clear their name. Well, in reality, there's no major symphony that has signed that agreement. No. Not one. There has been no action by Tresana or publishers taken against a symphony orchestra to date. Yeah. Um, but I'm tra- sure someone out there has paid it. Something. There, there's a lot of well, a lot of smaller orchestras are running scared. They, yeah. they are, they're canceling shows. They're canceling contracts that they've had agreements they have with artists, and um, the um, the one case that we know of was against a school marching band, and Tresona lost the case on yeah. a technicality. So they're still claiming, well, we never got to the law, the copyright law, our technicality, we lost it on some other issue. <coughs> but, you know, that's, that's yeah, where we're at. Yeah, and to go at. after a marching band, really. Uh, well, mean, there's a lot of people involved. Yeah. You know, what, what's amazing to me is um, they had a directive that from January 1st to May 15th, was this window to opt in to this contract agreement, of which if you signed it, and I read the whole thing, and if you sign it, you relinquish your rights to your arrangement if you are the arranger. Uh, And that the the copyright law says that it is the property of the original copyright holder, not you. And you would have to give that up. And, And from that point forward, you would have to rent back your own arrangement to perform it live. Yeah, and it's weird. Without compensation. It, yeah, it can go to, that could spread to anything. So if you decide tonight to do your own arrangement to a if, John Denver song in the show with just the band. And I printed out some sheet music for them to read, it would be an issue. Yeah. As long as they memorize it, it's not a problem. But you're in a, you know, and I, I think it's going to collapse. I don't think they can continue it. There's too much going on in, in contract you know, in agreements and when there's money being transferred, there's there's all kind of uh, a precedent set yeah. that historically this has not been the way it has been. So they're battling that. And on top of it, orchestras nowadays are just barely hanging on as they correct. are. Correct, right. So, so this is just this another would, nail in the coffin. Well, right? this would just bury most of the industry. And some of them are. Yeah. Some of them are folding they're going we're not going to do this yeah you know and it's sad to see that because that's been the goal is to try to rejuvenate the symphony and with pop music yeah um and it's been very successful though for the symphonies that have embraced it uh the ones that are continuing the hardline to do classical only it's not affecting them they can still play classical they can play traditional music that's not in a copyright you know scenario so there it's going to dumb down in in sense the uh choices yeah of what the symphonies have to play um we fit in a scenario though that's unique um copyright uh lawyer said i think you've found the only loophole in this whole thing and is that Lee's arrangements that we play that yeah. we revived are the 
original arrangements. These yeah. aren't derivative works. These aren't somebody going, I'm going to make an arrangement of a John Denver song. These are the John Denver arrangements of yeah. the John Denver song. And therefore, they are the copyrighted work already. Yeah. And so that's kind of put them in a stall pattern as to how to figure that out. They would still like, the publishers would still like orchestras to rent our music and pay a rental fee yeah. versus us just providing them for our yeah, own Yeah, so you're coming up with the charts. And, right. And here's, right. yeah. And then, it, which ends up being another another fee. Yeah, um, right. Just another way to either take it out of, you know, our margins or, or the symphonies, Yeah, you know. Yeah, you start adding all those things in and the cost of running an orchestra and right. the cost of promoting oh, yeah. a show and it's not easy to pay in. 60 70 people <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know to perform yeah it's yeah. ridiculous well hopefully that gets sorted out and uh, yeah i think it will uh yeah. the, you know what what's happening some of the major symphonies uh which i was kind of wow this is this is huge you know in the music business right now yeah. uh I, I was two things i was so surprised to see that very few people knew about it uh the law office i have a relationship with Never heard of it. This is totally news to them. Yeah. Um, Lee Holdridge, who is actually a copyright holder on some of John's music that he wrote for John. Yeah. He is the copyright holder on that piece. He's not. He doesn't have the publication rights. John did the publishing, but Lee wrote the song. It's yeah. his copyright. He didn't know that his publishers were doing this. The John Denver Estate, who is the copyright holder for the majority of John's songs, didn't know that this was being done on their behalf. Yeah. You know, and, and so, so no one's it's just something that got put into place. It got put into place. No one was told. And right. you just start threatening. Publishers are just doing it. Lisa's, yeah. yeah, you know, for years the publishers just send you a check. You don't ask how they got it. <laughs> yeah. You know? Uh well the other thing that was interesting right now is that these major symphonies are pushing back. There are some symphonies that have told Lee uh that if the music is registered with Tresona, they will not play it. Yeah. You know, they're boycotting anything that has to go through Tresona. Yeah. Which is great. You know, it's a good way to push back. You know, it hurts yeah. the artist, but it's okay. It's a short period of time. It's got to need pushback. And the education side of it is is atrocious. Our lawyers feel like that's where it's going to blow up, is that the education side that they're pushing on these universities and schools is where it's going to collapse because that's where it's happened before. You know that the the union will attack this with great force, saying you can't do this. There's got to be a compromise. Yeah. You know, and there's some there's some issues with maybe uh, antitrust issues that Tresona claims to be the only source that you can do this through. And I don't think that's going to hold up. No, that will get fought. Yeah. I mean, you take a look at. You know, when I was in high school and you sat and played in the band, that mm -hmm. music come, came from somewhere. Right. Um, and you start licensing that or putting fees on that. The music departments in high schools are disappearing right. already. Oh, right, right. Education uh, is the first chopping block is the music, you know, and, yeah. and, and that and the arts. But, you know, even then, you, the music that they would provide to the students to play has been purchased yeah. You know, they paid for the music. They, yeah. they paid to have it, and it was understood 
that the money paid for that music was to let the school play it. So the assumption legally is well, you're authorizing them to play it because you sold them the music. Yeah. I mean, there's a legal assumptions that have to get played. You'd almost wonder you'd start going to the, into the territory if you're playing a uh, a recital or you're in a competition or something, mm-hmm. and you're going up on stage with your printed music. Well, how yeah. do you deal with that? Right. And it's going to be this issue of how deep is Tresona going to yeah. attack You can't say this. this way is fine and this way isn't. You can't. No. Right. It's so all it's, or nothing. Yeah. We had one artist who does a Neil Diamond uh, show. Yeah. And um, he had not done a lot of performances with symphonies. He hadn't done any, really. And he was gearing up to do that. And he had his charts. And they approached him and said, we see you have a date with the... Uh, symphony um you're not you know legitimately able to do that you know and they threatened him and the whole thing and he freaked out and he went through and he filed all the forms he signed their contract and turned in his music to get it licensed and they came back and they said oh we can't do those songs that's with universal we don't have an agreement with universal we can't handle it. you know so all this threat and all that yeah. and then they they washed out anyway yeah. you know so it, i think you know they just push people because it's they can threaten them. Yeah, there is that with urgency. No merit, and it scares a lot of people. Right. And then they'll instead of yeah, you know, buckling down, said no. Right. Um, and it works. It's like a lot yeah. of businesses do that. They just come out and they threaten you. Right. And instead of kind of standing up, they, yeah, they just roll over and yeah. hope that for the that's what they're hoping that you'll just roll over and not push back. Yeah, because yeah. you're going to get a certain percentage of people who are just going to do that right. no matter what, and it's just more money in their pockets. So. Scary. Yep. Scary, scary. Yep. Weird times. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've been doing this for the 16 years, and at some point in the last few years, you finally feel like you're in this rhythm and things are working as, a, you know, a nice business. Uh, enough work is happening naturally with just, you know, inquiries and, and agents, and everything's moving nicely, and, and life seems calm and easy, and, you know, I've got actually time to be creative and maybe write some of my own stuff, you know, not yeah. be distracted, and uh, and then stuff like this happens, and it's like, oh, now what? Yeah. You know? <laughs> I know. Well, it keeps it interesting anyways. Yeah, I guess, yeah. So where do you see, uh, do you have any goals for this show or do you see it's something that you feel just floating along really well and and or do you do you set kind of where you want to be or you just let things go you know i've never been stable in that way uh, yeah. you know uh, even in our sign business our you know all of our adventures of of you know looking at things we always are very self uh, evaluating and critical and, and looking for what next. Um, I think it's it's part of a, maybe an artist's makeup to be driven. Um, and I, I never am satisfied with uh, where we're at, so to speak. You know, there's so much music, uh, even in John's library, that we've not been able to perform it's not what was on the radio you know so you want to you want to learn those you want to add them to the show you want to tweak things you know i do a big media production with the show and so i'm always looking for better media to tie in with the show um things like that on the production side of things but as a john denver tribute uh over the last three four years we've seen this 
floodgates open up of people wanting to do what we do. Yeah. And and they're not good. No. And, and they're you know they're they're very poor representations of, of of John. They're what we talked about at the beginning, where they're they're this cheesy impersonator. They wear the the hat, the vest. They they do the uh, far out, and they say all the John lines like he said in his live shows. Um, and, and and they don't sing well. They just yeah. maybe look like the guy, you know. And and so we we're battling that, and we're seeing that influence in the market uh, and the negative influence that has. But it does make us challenged to overcome it, to stay ahead of that, to do something different. Um, uh, I think one of the ideas we even talked about and has been kind of in the on the back burner for a long time is to uh cover other great music of that era yeah you know and and there are so many great great songwriters from that period of time that i connect with i always have you know i i love uh, some of the neil diamond stuff i love dan fogelberg uh jim croce um Glenn Campbell, you know, so many really good, good songs. And I think it would make a great show. So I think that's a developmental thing that has to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, people want to know if I do other shows. And I've never thought of doing other shows because I just sound like John. Even as a teenager, I'm singing Neil Diamond, you know, sitting around the campfire doing a Neil Diamond song. And yeah. then people saying, oh, it sounds like John Denver, Denver. doing Neil Diamond. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, that's the cool thing about your show, though. That's um, I always tell patrons if they're asking about this show. I said, he looks like him, he sounds like him, and he's not trying to. Yeah. It's just naturally you. Right, right. right. And that's what makes your show so great is that you're just being you. Yeah. And I think you know anyone listening that does a tribute show and wants to know how to make their show better that's what you got to do yeah. that's the key so you got to yeah. make it your own yeah instead yeah. of trying to be the artist because you never be the artist there's mm-hmm. only one right john denver you're not right. going to all of a sudden go and, and you, all of a sudden people are like well that was john denver it's like no that's not everyone knows it's not right. um and that's the tough thing to get past i it is yeah. it's the biggest and, hurdle yeah. uh you know between uh, the patrons and us, that is the biggest uh, thing to overcome to get them to come try and see the show. And we've heard it many, many times. Yeah. I, I was right on the fence. I wasn't going to come. I'm glad I did. Yeah. You know, uh, but then you've gained that, uh, that patrons trust now. So yeah. when you come back, they're going right. to tell everybody else, oh, you got to see this guy. Right. This right. is the one to see. Right. Uh-huh. And, you know, and, and I think from uh, speaking to those people that would like to do or would like to do what we do, uh, that that is a difference. And we learned this on the ships, working mm-hmm. with so many entertainers, uh, great entertainers. We were so fortunate to have that exposure to people who were entertainers. That's the difference. Yeah. You be an entertainer not an impersonator, not somebody else. You, you're you there to deliver something, you know, in as pure and honest way as you can. And I think my being a fan of the music, feeling this music in a personal way yeah. is, you know, a, a difference. I never thought to try to sing like somebody else. Yeah. You know, that's something Rich Little would do or, you know, yeah. one of those... 
impersonators? Well, I look at it, it, it's kind of two different things when I see some tribute shows out there. Um, so we'll take your show, for instance. So there's going to be, if I'm booking a show, say for our theater, or if I'm taking something on the road, and it's a tribute type show, for me, I do my homework to make sure the one I'm booking is the best one or yeah. does it the best, right? Right. Um, and the problem is that there are a lot of buyers who don't do that homework. Oh, yeah. So, oh, let's do a John Denver tribute. Oh, here's this guy. He's Let's, let's book him. And they don't spend that time to really research, is this the best one for us? Right. In our venue. Right. Because it doesn't do anyone any good. Um, it, it's not great for the venue. Someone comes and sees a show that's not very good. Yeah. It's not great for the artist that's doing that show. It's not great for the venue that's putting on that show. It's not right. great for the people paying the money to come see the show. No one really wins right. in that circumstance. Right. So, but it's a circle. It's, it's, it's the artist got to make sure they're doing justice right uh the venue's got to make sure they're doing justice to actually buying the right show right um responsible to yeah. their patrons yeah. yeah so i mean it's it's a, a problem uh, i think part of the thing is that some of these shows are really super reasonable too that's it's, the problem yeah. i mean you know these guys are truly uh and and maybe it's even being generous to say that they're in the amateur category because I mean maybe some of them aren't even qualified to you know be categorized as an entertainer at all you know but they're yeah. they're trying to do it and they've got a fortunate situation where somebody actually hired them yeah. and then they go do this bad show and, and there's a spot for those people to perform it's just not on a it's, big theater it's not in a, in a twelve hundred seat theater correct. And maybe they they can work their way there, right? But you can't start there, right? And that's and that's been the problem is yeah. that they start there, and we have personally experienced this market contamination uh, many times. I mean, what you're saying isn't just speculation; it's it's a reality that yeah. people should understand that what you're saying is not um, just pontificating on an idea it's it's a reality um and because we've had so many markets that say oh we did a john denver show we'll never do that again yeah and and um in a large form of that phenomenon is colorado um since we've been doing this i played red rocks in 2012 and have not been able to return because the market is ruined there by so many tribute artists coming, thinking that to do what we do, you have to be in Colorado, that you have to live there, you know, to be John Denver and to do their shows. And they've saturated the market with bad shows and ticket sales are impossible. And so, you know, PBS um, and all these big, the symphonies, you know, well, they won't take the gamble anymore. Yeah. You know, and it's... But it still goes back on, sad. for what I was saying earlier, for that venue that said, we've, we had a John Denver show in here, we'll never do that again. Right. Okay, well, whose fault is that? Correct. It's, it's the venue's fault. That's right. They bought the cheap show. Yeah. 
and didn't do their homework. Yeah. Right. Instead of saying, they should have said, we made a bad choice and booked the wrong show. Yeah. We're not sure if we can recover yet from that. <laughs> but maybe in a year or two, we could try it again with your show, which is the right show. Yeah. And because you have to get, you know, the patrons, um, as you said, they're, you know, they're John Denver fans come from a long Right. So right. all those people are going to make, are they going to make that two, three hour drive again for someone different that they're unsure about again? So they right. need a little bit of separation of time there. Right. But they can bring another show back and do it right yeah. the second time. But, right. it, you know, it's... it's and, and we've seen it. Yours is a good example. We've yeah. seen a, um, a, a better... Uh, than usual I mean a lot of venues will not have as you know a lot of um, performing arts theaters and routes and stuff that are hiring entertainment they won't bring an act back consecutive seasons um, yeah. or, or even every other year sometimes it's three sometimes five years before you are able to return uh, to their venue because they won't do it any sooner than that um, part of that's the amount of entertainment available out there. There's a lot of great shows and they want to provide their patrons with fresh new entertainment every season. Um, And so we understand that, but in the same vein, we've had certain venues that bring us back every year or every other year. And we see a much better growth and, you know, an increase if they do. Yeah. If it's a great show and it went over really well, the patrons really loved it. Right. They're going to go home. They're going to tell all their friends, oh, that was fantastic. I love that show. Right. You got to come see it. And they want to bring their friends just to prove their point, right? <laughs> yeah. Part of it is like, right, right. here come, because they already know they're going to look good to their friends because they know the show is great and they're going to love it and they're going to look great because they took them there. Right. If right. you leave it three, five years, people they, are going to forget, forget about it. That's exactly right. Is that right. the show we saw or is That's that? Right. I don't. I don't remember. They've moved right. on. They forgot about it. It's right. an American Idol thing. Yes. Right? Once you're on to the next season, or if you're three months later, you kind of forget who, who, won, the who last won last year. I don't right. remember. Or right. who was second and third. You knew everybody at the time, but you forget. Right. So, yeah, it's the same thing, I think. Yeah, it's a great you know, analogy. Sometimes a year, I can see the point that you don't want patrons thinking they're seeing the exact same right. schedule. This is the same of what they did last year. Um, but two years really works. Right. Um and and uh, you know for us it's it's a it is a policy for us you know yeah. that we will not do the same show. I mean we have to do the top hits, but there's so much to work with that we will make the show different. Um, and it's it's a struggle to get that. We know that there are tribute shows. There's a Beatles show that we are the Fab Four yeah. that is so packaged. It is exactly the same show every yeah. time you see it. the patter. The song list, the order, the what you're seeing on the videos, uh, you know, on the screen, um, and they've got it down pat. They do it really well. Yeah. But it is the same show, you know, and yeah. they never change it. So, uh, kind of, yeah. Once you've seen it, you've seen it, and you don't necessarily wouldn't necessarily go see it again anytime yeah. soon. But certain people will. It's like for me, it's like seeing a movie. Yes. You know, some people will go back to see it in the theater again. I've never done that. No. But there's certain I, movies I've watched probably 10 or 12 times. <laughs> you know, that yeah. for some reason, if I'm on the plane, I've got my laptop with me, and I had a list of movies I want to watch. Eh, I don't know. But there's a Jason Bourne movie there. And I've watched this like 15 times already. 
but I'll watch it again, again. Yeah, because yeah. I know I, I'm entertained by it right, for some strange right, reason. Right, right, right. And I think the same thing is with, with shows. There's a certain amount of people who will come back and they want they don't want it different. Right, you know, that's right? true. They want, because different doesn't always mean better. better right. Always that's, that's the thing that a lot of artists don't think about is that if you're going to change it, make sure it's as good Right. Or better than what you had already done or don't change it right. at all. Right. And that, then, it's a scary, scary yeah. risk in a sense. I think uh, the years of, of performing give us a little bit of experience. You you'll, know, you'll how know to, yeah. Yeah, we know, you know, we, we can feel it. We can sense it like the ad addition of that Wandering Soul song. Yeah. You know, it's a dynamic difference in our show, yeah. but it's a good one. You know, I think dramatically it, it added some contour to our show that we've never had before. Yeah. You know, where I, really I, like put, it. The, yeah. I put the guitar down and I just yeah. sing. You know, Lee has been after me, Lee Holdridge, to do more of that. He says, you know, he struggled with John to put the guitar down and just sing. Yeah. You know, and he says it's a good moment, you know, for you to do that. And he, so I've been, you know, it's a push, it's a stretch, but it's worth it. You know, I think it pays you off. You almost become. A different singer for that song yeah in the show yeah and or else you're seeing a slightly different side of you yes that yeah. that all of a sudden there's this moment and for those who've haven't seen the show just a piano vocal right um really intimate uh moment at the end of the first half right with, with us here right and it was it's great like the yeah. first time it was like Holy crap! Where did that come from? Yeah, <laughs> you know, really, <laughs> yeah. really, it was it, it was like that. Yeah, and it's like it actually. You need more vocal chops to to bring that. Yes. Yeah. That, oh yeah. That song. Yeah. yeah. Across. Well, you know, it's it's yeah. a it's a new exposure. You're totally yeah. exposed. You know, I uh, I don't have the instruments or the guitar in front of me. I don't have anything to hide behind. You know, yeah. and it's it's very. Uh, uh, unsettling in some ways as a performer to be that exposed so you you know learning to embrace that and connect through a different way you know is is because on paper I, on paper i probably wouldn't have put that song where you put it ah. just before an intermission uh-huh but once i've seen it it's like yeah it's perfect yeah yeah it's one of those things you and that's the thing sometimes you don't know it too right you right you look at it on paper and it's like yeah should i i'm not gonna leave people just kind of in yeah. this state before they go to intermission, that's just you've you've done this right ballad that just it's very powerful and brings you in right. But most people were like, "Oh, let's rock it out for the last song, right, right, and finish on a high note, right, right, right." But you you're you're ending on a different type of high note, right? Right. It's a very right. emotional right. high note, and it's it's a great. It's a great moment in the show. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and, and we, we've 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 had a lot of people that produce shows, and you know they give us a lot of advice uh, over the years. Um, and and it's difficult because if they don't know John, yeah, you know, and what his show was like, uh, their perspective is from a show business perspective, and their idea of how the end should be is totally different than really what John would do. Many of his shows, it's just him. Yeah, you know, the very end of the show, it's just him and his guitar. And um, the biggest re recollection that people share with us is the concert they went to of John Denver, 
and he let the band go and he came out and he did a whole hour just him yeah you know um so it's different you know and then, and i understand that that suits for the fan who remembers it. it's it's a nostalgic moment to bring the show to there um it's true for any concert though you think back of all of the all the concert you've seen right you mm -hmm. think of were those moments of in the show that really made you remember so right right seeing queen you know 20 years ago what was that one moment that you remember from and it's usually one of those type of moments right right where it was something that became really intimate right or something that was you'd go out in the audience or, or, or there's something that just brought the people to you or you right. brought yourself to the people yeah and you don't always remember oh yeah when they you know saying whatever hit it was that was my favorite moment in the show right. it would have been something you liked but usually those big hits aren't always it's the moment that brings makes you remember or if something happened or if something went wrong and you made something <laughs> out of it right right right, that right. Ended yeah, those up being are positive the, right. those are the ones we've had shows here uh where we lost power mm. and it was during one of our walters family shows i remember once and so just grabbed our instruments and and Did sat you? down in front of the stage <laughs> and sang a bunch of shows. Yeah, yeah. And that was maybe twelve years ago. Wow. I still have people come because and every that. time they come, they say, "Remember that time? Yeah, when the power went right. out and and you guys just sang. We love that." And then you think, well, <laughs> you can't really do a show no, like that. No, you can't build that in. No, throw the switch. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> that's the thing they remember because the part of it is, I think they feel that they've got something that nobody else got. Yeah. Or it's just, they could connect to it way better. Um, right. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. And that, I think with that song at the end of your first set, it has that same moment, yeah. same type of thing, yeah. you know, cause it takes right. you away from everything else you've been doing to something a little different. And it, and it's, you know, you can grab, grab people's emotions that way yeah no Works and we're good. loving it and it's a great song you know it, yeah it's, that's the other thing it's a, it's really a good and that's something you know we struggle with there's so many great songs to share and not enough time yeah. you know to do it and so you know we we play a regular gig in california uh it's the old uh, the owner of the old ice house you know uh, where the big folk scene always was and uh small listening room 50 people and it's a good place for us to try out stuff, you know, and, and get get some feedback from us, you know, intimate audience as to, you know, how it played. And the owner gets a little antsy. You know, he's sitting back there at the control booth wondering when we're going to get back to one of those familiar songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and so we have to be careful because he keeps drawing us back. He says, you know, you, you got to get some of those hits in there. I was like, well, you know. Yes and no, but it's, you know, the, the reaction is always great. And he always understands that when he sees it. Yeah. Because you just gave them a song they'd never heard before that's great. You know, so you want to do that. You want to expose them to some great music, especially yeah. in a f club like that. You know, most of the people that play a club like that are singer-songwriters. They're playing their own stuff you've never heard before. No one's ever heard it. Yeah. It's like Why the, not? the comedians in L.A. who... You know, almost every night go to a small club and yeah, work the new material. Work the new material. That's right. And that's right. You know, it makes right. There's not enough of those places for 
for musicians to play. No, you know? no. I wish there was. Especially in, in the West Side. Yeah. I, I think there's more out this direction. In the East, there's a lot more uh, rooms to play uh, out this way. We look at our map, you know, where, we, where we've been, and, and it's this heavy cluster of, of stars all over the East and the Central Time Zone. Yeah. Yeah. So... so Cruise ship wise, you're um, not on as much as you used to be, but Correct. that's probably it's it's a good thing, you yeah. know. My relationship with Holland America has been great. It's been exclusive. Yeah. I do no other cruise lines. Uh, they appreciate that. Yeah. But as we're booking for our land tours, um, we do that a year in advance. Most venues in on land require it. You yeah. know, you can't book something a month away. Very infrequent does no. that happen yeah we're gonna have a year um, and a half yeah almost two years something right here, yeah. right and cruise ships uh are totally the opposite they look at things about three months out yeah and so it's great for me to have the relationship because we can get our calendar all locked in for a year from now and as we get approach that three-month window if i have a gap yeah. in our land group um I can offer it to Holland America and they send back a contract. It fills it in like mortar. You know, it's just perfect. So what's your, uh, cause I'm an avid cruiser. I like cruising. Uh, <laughs> what's your, what's your favorite stop? Wow. You know, we, there's a few. Yeah. I, I really like, um, Alaska. You know, we like that whole itinerary. It's so scenic. And you know, it doesn't matter whether they're in May or in September. It's still beautiful. You know, we like the, the change up there. Yeah. I love the New England run. I yeah. mean, that's a phenomenal feeling of going back in time. You know, the historic feel of Quebec and Montreal and uh, Prince Edward Isle. You know, all those are incredible uh, ports. Um, yeah. Very unique and different for us. Um, plus, it's one of the only... Uh, excursions or trips we go on where we can see like a beluga whale or something you know yeah. we don't see those anywhere else yeah. um, but out in the Caribbean it would uh, be like uh, Puerto Rico you know the old castles there and forts yeah. uh, and so it's uh, kind of those in general I, I did get a chance to go out to um, Mombasa uh, in Africa and work our way up to Egypt uh, via Kuwait, I guess we went. I, yeah. I wasn't real thrilled about Kuwait, but you yeah. know, when we got to Egypt, um, I was with Danny Cat. Uh, he's a BCIT pr professor of ecology, but he comes on the cruise ships and does lectures yeah. uh, of his travels, and he's done some amazing uh, explorations to teach. Uh, he does these webcasts of st to his students from his explorations. But... Uh, we were there in Alexandria, and um, the passengers on the ship were all going to the pyramids. And there was we we joined the ship midway, you know, so yeah. we're too late to book that. It's all booked up. We can't get to the pyramids. So we go into town, and Danny finds a travel agent, and we book a day excursion out into the desert. And uh, it's spent the day with this Bedouin tribe, Bedouin village, 
and it was an incredible nine-hour day of adventure, you know, and and so that's very memorable. It was actually the, you know, and then I got back to the ship and was so excited about the whole thing, I ended up writing a a song about it, you know, Sands of the Bedouin, and Danny helped me finish it, so it was something that we did, uh, collaborated on it, and then, you know, so it's, it's some of those real visceral days, you know, that you get traveling like that, that you experience something you'll never have imagined you doing in your life. Um, so what's your, um, what's your worst sea experience? <laughs> oh my God. It's gotta be, there's always you know, one bad sea day. Yes. Uh, crossing, mm-hmm. crossing to Russia from Seattle. Mm. It's a six oh, that's, day, that's six a day haul. trip, six day trip. And, uh, at least four of those days, the seas were up to like 30 feet. Oh, God. It was, you know, like watching an episode of The Deadliest Catch. Yeah. You know, you're just out there and you're just bobbing around. Thankfully, one of those calmer days was our show day. Oh, nice. But, um, but still. Is anyone there? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It's like, who in the world would come out when it's moving like this? Yeah. Uh, you know, even the calmer days were not calm. They were just calmer, you know. Yeah. They might have been 15-foot waves or something. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, you know, there's nothing you can do except lay down, you know, on those days. And, yeah. But you got that old salty sailor going, what's the problem? This yeah, is nothing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you're, you're... And he's the one that they make the show go on for because he's a passenger. He goes, well, I don't see the problem. Yeah. yeah. Some, and some people just don't get affected by it or it doesn't right. bother them. Right. But, oh, yeah. But yeah, it's it, it bothers me. I don't like those long crossings. Yep. We get, like to, to we get to Russia on a Sunday after all of that. Everybody's so anxious to see land. Yeah. And Russia on a Sunday was the worst possible stop. It was really there only as a fuel stop. Oh, yeah. You know, there's nothing open on Sunday. It was rainy. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't a great experience hitting land. But then we went south to Japan. Yeah. Uh, we got off in Yokohama and we flew home. But prior to leaving the ship, um, Lorna Luft was coming on. Uh, and she was, you know, we, we share the rooms, you know, so she was moving into my room and I was leaving and, uh, and she and her husband were there and uh, she says, well, how was the crossing? I said, oh, you don't want to know. It was bad, like 30-foot waves. It was horrible. She, she goes, see? See, that's why I'll never do that again. So she apparently had that experience herself and oh, yeah. would promise she would never do it. That's why she was joining the ship in Yokohama to avoid that whole mess yeah yeah the washing machine yeah yeah because it can happen yeah so did you did you really enjoy your long stints on the cruise ships we did you know when we're in a in an area like new england or or alaska it's great because stopping every day we're we're stopping almost every day on those on those itineraries and since we're doing north south north south uh week after week when we were doing that before they stopped that yeah policy um we could pick and choose, you know. I think the cruising is a great snapshot of ports and places to see yeah. for the passengers, and you really can't dig into an area and find more about it. You know, you get a glimpse while you're in port for that short time, then you yeah. leave. Get the highlights. Doing what we do, we got to see it over and over and over again each week. We got to see the port and try, you know, exploring different things. So it was really quite. Uh, enriching, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's fabulous. 
Well, I, I know we're uh, we're at a couple hours or so. So I'm, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great wrapping it up. Uh, it's been fabulous having you on the podcast. Thank you. And uh, learned a lot about uh, your life and where you got. And you have a fantastic show. And anybody out there who hasn't seen Jim, uh, make sure if he's in your neighborhood, you visit Jim Curry and say hello and say you've heard him on the podcast or just come and say hello because you're one of the friendliest entertainers that we've had here. <laughs> you love to chat and oh, people love you. to come up and, and chat with you. And, and uh, I think that's always a good, especially with our venue here. I know a lot of people, especially with the bus groups and that, you know, they're, they're ready to go on the bus and right, get going. Right, right. Uh, but the last few days, the bus has all been waiting because there's always a bunch <laughs> of people still <laughs> chatting with you and wanting to, you know, which yeah. is great. I like that. I think oh, that's good, always good. a good, that's a good sign that, people want to engage with you right yeah and that's well, really important you know doing what we do it's it's great to meet people you just yeah. you know you never know i meet some amazing amazing people yeah. you know you, there's this iconic uh, uh photograph of vietnam and there's this helicopter coming down and picking people up off a roof and, you know and almost everybody has seen this on the newsreel we met the woman who was doing that no way. It, it was a woman yeah. uh a helicopter pilot yeah yeah it was amazing to meet these people you know it's like wow that was you okay yeah yeah so yeah, you never know amazing. and so you know we enjoy it we love meeting the the people that come to the show they're, they're always interesting i think you know yeah. no it's a fascinating part yeah. of entertaining well, uh, everyone, thanks for listening. It's uh, Darren Walters Podcast In Session with Darren Walters. You can find me on darrenwalterspodcast.com, on Instagram, and on Facebook. And what about where can everyone find you, Jim? Uh, at uh, jimcurrymusic.com. Great. And you're on uh, Facebook or anything as well? Yes, there, there's a Facebook. Uh, it's the, uh, the uh, let's see. It's a really long one. I I think if you if you search Google, search, yeah, search Jim, Jim Curry, Curry you, you find, find it, it right. Yeah. yeah, good. Well, excellent. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.